You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Um, 1 John is a direct letter. You ever had someone just tell it to you straight? You know anybody that can't do anything except tell it to you straight? Sometimes you just want it straight. You know, doctors are good at that. Um, there are certain people in your life that just tell you like it is. And I know for me, I need some people in my life that'll just come out and tell me like it is. Sometimes my wife is that for me. Just comes out and tells me like it is, I need to hear it. Well, First John is a letter from a man operating in many ways like a father speaking to his children. And he's writing to members of the family, and he's done it for the most part without beating around the bush. He's been addressing some very tough subjects, and he's approached them head on. And last week, we were in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and we pointed out how John changed his tone in that section. He's been very direct, he's been very to the point, but for those three verses, he changed his tone from, from more direct to almost more encouraging, Reminding them that they're part of the family. Reminding them that their standing in the family is, is unchangeable. And it was a good lesson for us on Father's Day, I believe, because uh, it, it was all in the middle of all the correction and training that we sometimes get into, dads. It's, we're good at the correction and we're less good at the training, but we're far less good at the encouragement part. And how there's a, last week we talked about there being a dad triangle and You need the correction and you need the training, but you also, in the middle of it all, you need that time that's encouraging. Because if you don't take the time to encourage and all you do is is focus on the correction and you focus on the training, then you can probably produce children that are obedient, but you may not produce children that have the right kind of spirit. The encouragement comes along and acts as a balance to that, and dad should train, dad should correct, but we need the balance of encouragement. And John is a good example of that principle right here in this chapter. He gives us a glimpse into how God the Father deals with his children. Because yes, it is demanding. And don't let anyone tell you in this modern church culture that being a Christian is simply something you fit into your life and nothing really has to change and there's not many demands. You just kind of do it on Sundays. No, that a disciple's life is demanding. If we're to follow Christ like he wants us to, like we're told to, There are expectations. It can be tough. But in the middle of it all, there's never a doubt that we are loved because God will take the time to deal with his children gently when we need it because we do need it at times. So John gives us a fine example of the principle here, but in case you thought he would just stay with the encouraging part, it does not. He doesn't waste much time and he jumps right back in to direct correction and training in our text today. But even still, as we go through this, you know, many of us, we quote these verses, love not the world, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And we're looking very, usually we're looking at all of the no's. And we're thinking about all the things that John is telling us not to do because that's what Christians are supposed to do. But I, will, I hope that you'll discover by the end of it, even today as we go through this text, John is still balanced in his approach. And I think we'll find that. We're dealing with another hard subject, but by the end of it, I hope that you'll see that he has a desire for the good of the family. 
to come out of this, and that's driving his instruction. He's not just being hard for the sake of being hard. He has an end in mind that I believe is extremely positive. So the first thing that I want to point out today out of our text is that if you love the world, you can't love God too. If you love the world, you cannot love God too. What does John mean by the world? Well, the, word, the Greek word for world here is cosmos. You know, that's a word we've heard before. And in the Bible, it can mean a few things. It can, number one, it can mean the globe. Uh, number two, it can, mean, it can mean all the members of the human race. For instance, for God so loved the world, he so loved the cosmos, everyone that lives in the world. But in this case, it's something different. In this case, it means the world system or the world's philosophy. One definition of cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, is it's the ungodly multitude. The whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. That's what John is writing about when he says, love not the world. This mass of multitude that is against and hostile to the cause of Christ. And I'm not going to spend much time on it to explain it this morning. I think most of us in here will get it. But there is a world system out there that is opposed to God. And the one in charge, the one in control of that world system is Satan himself. John 12, 31 says, uh, John himself wrote about Satan and called him the prince of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, 2, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, which is the same word, cosmos, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is talking about Satan himself, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So what Satan is out to try to do, he is working in us, so that we would become children of disobedience. He's trying to get us to do anything that is the exact opposite of what God tells us to do. That's the world system. It's the opposite. It's contradictory. It is completely different or other than God's system or philosophy. That's what Satan's trying to get us to do. The world follows a pattern of their prince. And they hate God and the things of God. They embrace things that are opposite of God. If God says this, they say that. You know, you probably have known people like that in your life too. You, you could call them contrary. Maybe you have someone in your life that every time you say one thing, they say the opposite. If you have a sibling, then probably you've experienced this. I believe there are many siblings' personalities that are shaped wholly by the fact that they were trying to be the opposite of an older sibling. Whatever they like, I don't like it. Whatever they do, I don't want to do it. Well, that's how Satan deals, and that's how the world deals with God's truth. If it's opposite of God's truth, that's what I want. And it explains James 4.4 when he said, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world, the friendship of the world is enmity with God. He says, Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. They stand in direct opposition. And I know that many in the world, many that aren't saved, don't set out to be against God, but because they are influenced by the world system that the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, has implemented, then just by nature, they are against God. They are enmity with God. They are the enemies of God. And I don't mean that they're enemies in that God looks at them like his enemies and that he's out to destroy them God still loves everyone, but that their philosophy is the enemy of God. Whatever God is, the world is not. 
If God is holy, the world is impure. If God, is, if God loves righteousness, the world loves sin. If God is patient and kind, the world's philosophy is demanding and angry. If God is selfless, the world is selfish, selfish and full of self. The message that John is telling the family is you can't love God and something completely opposite of God at the same time. It's funny how we try to do this. But the Bible says in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is, it is impossible. James 1.8 says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that word double-minded means divided in interest. You can't be going two ways at the same time. You can't love God and the world at the same time. You have to make a choice or you are double-minded and unstable in all your ways. This is an exclusive relationship. And again, I look at modern church culture today and I see how many say, well, you can be a Christian and not really change much about your life. You just kind of add him in in, in some compartment along the way, and you can basically be just like you are and don't have to change much. Well, that's not what the Bible says. You can't love God and the world at the same time. This is an exclusive relationship. Now, if you get married and you tell your bride on your wedding day, now, I love you. I love, you are my heart. You are my world. I also love this person over here. How well do you think that is going to work? It doesn't work in marriage, and in the same way, it does not work as a Christian serving and loving God. You can't love God and the world at the same time. The next thing I want to notice here is that the world's way of living is short-lived. The world's way of living is short-lived. Look at verse 16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. See, lust and pride are incompatible behaviors for the child of God. See, lust and pride, according to John here, they're indicators of a worldly perspective. They're indicators of a worldly philosophy. In verse 16, John deals with three categories of, of sin that are the fruit of the world's philosophy. He says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when I think about those three, my mind goes to Eve in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came along, tempting Eve, the very first sin, he was introducing the world to his philosophy. He was introducing Eve to his world system. The world system shows up in Genesis 3, and it hasn't changed since. You've got the lust of the flesh. This first happened when Eve saw that the tree was good for food. You've got the lust of the eyes. Another aspect was that she saw the tree. You've got the pride of life. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She thought that by eating of the tree, she could be like God. She could take God's place in life. Lust and pride are the spark behind every sin. We lust when we want something strongly. Lust is strong desire. It happens in sexual sins. It happens in stealing. It happens in covetousness. It happens in jealousy. We strongly desire and lust after what we see and what our bodies want. Pride is an interesting term. You've got lust and pride, especially considering its use today. You know, pride is at the root of sin because pride removes God from His throne and replaces him with me. 
Pride says, I am the one calling the shots. Pride says, I am the one in charge. I'm doing things for my benefit. I'm looking out for number one. And this word in 1 John means empty boasting. Pride is a fitting word here, and it's a fitting word in our culture. You know, just last week in Sioux Falls, there was a pride parade. And I don't think, I find it interesting that they use that term. They were elevating a lifestyle that reflects both lust and pride and is diametrically opposed to God's holiness. And I know this is it, this can be considered insensitive. I'm trying to preach the Bible as it is, and I want God's word to be proclaimed in truth, and I want to do it with a spirit of love. But the homosexual lifestyle is a sin. It's an affront to, an holy, to a holy God. In Romans 1, it talks about men and women putting themselves in the position of God. We could go read it, but we won't take the time. And they put themselves in a position of God, which is pride. And God then gives them up to their vile affections and their burning lust, which is lust. And the result is men and women, according to Romans 1, leaving natural use and working that which is unseemly, which is inappropriate or unnatural or shameful. And Satan rejoices in that movement. And Satan rejoiced on the streets of Sioux Falls just last weekend when that pride parade went down the streets of Phillips Avenue. He was rejoicing because that lifestyle is diametrically opposed to God's holiness. And we know that God, that Satan wants anything that he does, he wants to be the opposite of God. And I'm just telling you today that he rejoices in that, the pride movement. And that agenda has adopted those two symbols that I believe are significant. The first, obviously, is pride and is wrong. And, you know, they, it's, it really does sum up the lifestyle. And, and on every level, pride is the opposite of what God expects from his people. And honestly, can I tell you this? I'm thankful the word pride was chosen because that is the opposite of what God's people are supposed to be. Because it so clearly conveys something God hates as a sin and is a clear indicator of the mindset of those that are engaged in that lifestyle. The other term that they've adopted or symbol they've adopted is the rainbow. And that one's harder to swallow. It kills me because they've taken something as special as a rainbow, which is an indicator that God keeps his promises, and they're using it to promote a lifestyle, again, that is completely opposite of God. Now, honest, as a side note, let me just say, it is the opposite of God to hate sinners. In that, God so loved the world. And I'm not saying that we embrace their sin or embrace their lifestyle, but as God's people, if God loved the world, we can hate the sin and at the same time love the sinners. And in a certain lifestyle, even if God, I mean, God loves their soul and, and we ought to as well, but... Love never justifies sin, but holiness never justifies hatred for the sinner. We can hate the sin, but let's be balanced in this today, that we are following a biblical pattern and that God says that lifestyle is wicked. The fact that they've embraced the term pride, it's, in my opinion, it's a good thing because it just really confirms further what John says in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, or if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are opposite of what God loves. He is opposed to lust. He is opposed to pride. He is holy and expects his children to be holy. And lust and pride are certainly not family traits. 
If you're a member of the family and you live with pride, you are not conveying family traits. If you're a member of the family and you live according to lust, then you are not, you're not conveying the traits of the family member. And what I find interesting here is that everyone embraces lust and they embrace pride and that seems to be uh, that which our culture celebrates. Uh, but it is an, it is, it, the Bible says that the world passeth away and the lust thereof. Meaning that lust is never satisfied, it's fleeting. And pride is empty, it's short-lived. The world passeth away, that temporary fleeting nature of the world system is borne out in the sin it produces. How many people have been promised fulfillment by some lust or some desire for power or attention only to have it gone as quickly as it arrives? So I say that to the members of Eastside Baptist Church and especially even to young people today, that the world makes it look like it's fun and that the living according to your body and living according to your pride and living according to your lust will satisfy you, but the world passeth away and the lust thereof. It is fleeting and temporary and it doesn't last. Verse 15b, John writes, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those with lust and pride are of the world because a a person bears the traits of the family to which they belong. If we live in such a way that we display lust and pride, that looks nothing like God, and the safe assumption is that that person is not part of God's family. And you can say you're part of the family, but if you look nothing like the rest of them, it's going to be hard to convince anyone. Those that claim to be members of God's family but bear the marks of the world through lust and pride, either number one, do not love the Father, or maybe even more clearly, are not part of the family. And I know that sounds direct. It is direct. Don't forget, this is a a direct letter. This is a direct message. We need to hear it directly sometimes. But I want to consider, though, we're going to make a shift. And I want to consider how we view this exhortation. See, we could certainly call this, to this point, we could call it correction and training. Verses 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but of of the world. And we say, bless God. Bless God. Don't love the world. Bless God. We say these things, and we could say it dogmatically. And and people might, in his day, people might have said, well, all John ever says is no. I've had my children accuse me of that. To their mother. They go, go ask their mom something. They say, well, mom, can we do this? And she'll say, well, what does your dad say? And they'll say, dad will just say no. He always says no. I mean, I'm the no person in our family, okay? So I'm the no guy, and John was a no guy. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. And if people were describing John, they would say, no, no, no. All he ever says is no. All he ever says is bad, bad, bad. John has so many rules. All he cares about is rules. Dads in training and correction, we're going to be we're going to have to be mean sometimes. Moms, you have to be mean sometimes. And, and people are going to say, well, you don't care about me. All you care about is the word no. It's all you can say. And that's the Christian life. Know this. Don't do that. Stay away from sin. Danger, danger. You know, if we're not careful, that is how we start to view the Christian life. We start to view God and all his rules as a no God. God just wants robots. He loves rules more than a relationship. And that's what it can feel like sometimes. But be careful in getting your view flipped here. 
See, I want to remind you of a couple of things. See, God originally gave one rule. And his one rule in that Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, he said, The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So I want you to understand, there was one rule, don't eat of this one tree of knowledge of good and evil, but he did say, everything else is at your disposal. Every other tree, you can eat of it. That tree over there, what about Adam? Okay, well, what about this tree over here? Yeah, well, what about that tree behind the organ? Yeah. What about this tree over here, God? I saw that, yep. What about that tree? Sure. Just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what about this one? Is it the tree of knowledge of good and evil? No. Then yes. Sometimes, you know, you feel like you talk to your kids that way. What about this? Yes. 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 Well, God was just giving them a free reign of the garden and saying, whatever you want, all the trees except one. So don't give God a bad rap. Sometimes we assume that God's a rule monger. God loves rules. God wants to give us a bunch of rules because he wants us to be miserable and he wants to kind of put us down and he wants to keep us under control. No, when everything else was the way it was supposed to be, there was one rule in that garden. So I want to remind you, God originally gave one rule, but number two, mankind couldn't handle that one rule. Adam and Eve broke the one rule they were given. Genesis 3 speaks about Satan coming to them in the form of a serpent, introducing the world system. And it's evidence of our nature that in a perfect environment where everything is lined out, everything is laid out like we need it, that even in that perfect environment, all it took was one voice to convince Adam and Eve to do something different. So the one rule that they had, they couldn't keep. And now because of their sin, we have inherited a sin nature. But I want you to be mindful of the fact or thinking that sometimes that God is a rule monger because he's not. The only reason that there are more rules now, you say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, it's because of the sin in the garden that the Ten Commandments came about. But not probably even as you think they should have come about. So we sometimes say, well, the Ten Commandments, God loves rules. He's a rule monger. He wants to keep us down. He wants to give us all of these things. Well, no, God's giving us of the Ten Commandments was not so that we'd have a list to keep because we can't keep it. His reason for giving us the Ten Commandments was because we're all sinners. And he wants to give us a very clear picture of the fact that we cannot keep God's law. And we are sinners. Galatians chapter 3 says that the law is our schoolmaster. It helps us to see that we're sinners. So even then, in all the Ten Commandments, when people say, God's a rule monger. No, even in giving the Ten Commandments, it was for our good so that we would see that we're sinners, so that we would be drawn to Jesus Christ. So even the rules he gives us are for our benefit, not just because he's a control freak trying to keep us down. And the world says that about God. They think he's a rule monger, and I don't mean to make light of him, by calling him a control freak, I'm saying that that's what people attribute to him. It's not God's fault that there are more rules now. It's ours. Adam and Eve sinned, and the sin nature was passed on to each of us, according to Romans 5.12, and now we are sinners, not by force, but by choice. Genesis makes that clear. So the first thing I want you to notice as we talk about this, that God is a no God. Well, he originally only gave one rule. Two, mankind couldn't handle that one rule. And third, God's reason for the rule was life. 
See, if we were to read Genesis 2, again, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. See, God gave them a rule, and, and many people seem to think it's unfair, but by giving them a rule, he was giving them the opportunity to choose God. If all God had done was give them a rule, or no, give them no rules, I should say, then they would have had no choice but to love God. By having something to choose, they could choose God. By having a choice of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they could choose to love God. Having a choice to sin gave them a choice to love. So even if we think it's unfair, God desires fellowship. He doesn't want to put people in in the garden with no choice but to follow him because that's a robot religion. He, want, he gave them a choice so they would choose him. And he didn't want them to choose the, the, the sin, but they did. God desires fellowship. He didn't want rules. He wants a relationship. And by giving him a choice to sin, he gave him a choice to, to love. John, uh, Genesis 3 very clearly says God told them not to eat of that tree because he didn't want them to die. You understand that? God's reason for the rule was life. And a lot of people think, well, God gives us rules to keep us down. But God gave them a rule in the garden so that they could continue living. And that starts to connect with the big idea this morning. There's a principle here that I think can really help us beyond just don't love the rule. So God's way of living leads to life. And the world passeth away, verse 17, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. See, the concept in 1 John 2, 17 is very similar to the concept in Genesis 2, 17. God gives rules so that we won't experience death. So the positive side to that is God gives rules so that we may experience life. God's heart for sinners caused him to say, don't eat of the tree because I don't want you to die. And that same heart for sinners is causing John here in 1 John to say, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Do you see the parallels here? Friend, today, God wants you to make it. He wants you to live a good life. He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to spend your life walking with Him and knowing Him. That's why we were created. It's the best, most fulfilling and happiest life there is. But the biggest hindrance to that relationship with God is our sin because He's holy and He can't stand the presence of sin, not just because He's full of Himself, but because of His nature of holiness. He can't be around sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. So listen, when he says things like don't eat of the tree or love not the world, it's not because he wants to ruin all of our fun. It's because he loves us. He tells us to say no for good reasons. He tells us to say no because God knows that sin destroys people and he doesn't want us to be destroyed. In my own Bible reading in 1 Peter chapter 2 today, I read that we should abstain from worldly lusts because they war against the soul. And God knows that if I give myself to lust, and if I give myself to pride, and I give myself to all these things that seem so enjoyable, God knows that I am actually waging war against my own soul. Sin destroys us. 
So when God gives us a rule, it's not because he just wants to beat us down. He's not just a no God. No, he gives us a rule because he doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. Number two, he gives us a rule because he wants to fellowship with us. He's holy, and we live in a sin, and if we live in sin, that relationship is impossible. So again, I want you to understand, when God says no, it's not because he wants us to be miserable. It's because he's holy. And if I live in sin, he can't have a relationship with me. It's not about him being mean to me. It's not about him ruining all the fun. Another reason that he says no is he wants us to abide forever so that we can enjoy that relationship for eternity. Listen, when God says no sin, he's not saying no fun. When he says no sin, he's saying, I don't want you to be destroyed. He's saying, I, don't want, I want to have fellowship with you. He's saying, I want you to have eternal life with me in heaven. That's why the no is there. See, it's not about the no, it's about the yes. The no is about the sin. Don't lust, don't have pride, don't disobey. Our problem is though, and here's our problem, we get focused on the no's. We think, well, life is so hard. Being a disciple is just tough. I have so many rules. I've got so many things in life that I'm supposed to keep. And and we get focused on those things. But I need you to stop looking. And we need to stop looking at, at it like it's a big no. And start looking at the fact that it's a big yes. The no's are worth it when you realize this is about a relationship with God. If saying no to sin means I can abide forever with God, then I'll embrace the no because the yes is better. If saying no to sin means I can have abundant life instead of fleeting life, that's fine with me because the yes is better. We're talking about a greater yes. The greater yes is a relationship with God or or over living in sin. So it would be helpful for us to stop looking at life Like it's about some long list of things you can't do. Instead, we need to view life from the perspective that the small no's are worth it. If it means I get to experience a greater yes. You know, in this case, I would trade sin, which is the no, for God. Which is the yes. You know, there's no greater yes than fellowship with a holy, eternal father. And it's available to you. If you're willing to embrace the smaller no's so you can enjoy a greater yes, then you can be a disciple. You know, just yesterday, we took our our family. I've got my family in town, and I'm thankful uh, for Brother Stevens, uh, pastors in California, my wife's dad, and her family are here today. uh, And we're grateful to have them here, her brother and his family as well. And yesterday, we took them to what everybody does when you come to Sioux Falls. Where do you go see? Falls Park. Right. After that, I don't know what you do, but until then, we're going to Falls Park. So we took them to Falls Park, and we walked around. And it was, I was trying to just kind of watch the dynamic. You know, when we go, you've got these beautiful waterfalls, and the water's rushing, and there's noise, and, and you know, it's just a neat environment. But when we take our kids, they don't look at the falls at all. They climb all over the rocks. I'm like, do you see the falls over here? And they're climbing up the rocks. But there are many times, even just yesterday, what I noticed was since there's no fencing around the falls, around most of it, that you could get really close to the water. So every time we've taken our kids there, you know, Jace is the most um, exploratory of all of them. 
He's the most ambitious in, in, our, in our family because he's a boy and we've got all girls and, and he's running all over the rocks and there are times where I can see him sizing up a gap from one rock to the next and I'm like, I think I can make this. I think I can do this. And right then is when I say, Jace, Jace, no, bud. You can't do that. You need to come around, get away from the water. You need to walk this way. I need you to come over here and get into the safety zone because he scares me a little bit. Well, just yet yesterday, the same thing. We took Jason and our, the whole family, and then we took uh, Brother Ryan and Mindy and their kids, and they were climbing all over the rocks. And there were times where, you know, especially moms, moms were like, hey, 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 come back, come back. Get away, get away from the water. Come here. And I'm like, let him try it, you know. <laughs> and mom's, you know, trying to call him back. And, and you know, I, I want him to explore a little bit, but I don't want him to be safe or unsafe. And, I don't want him to be safe. Yeah, let's have an invitation. I don't want him to be unsafe. I want, his, I want him to stay alive. I probably said no probably 20 or 30 times to Jace yesterday. But you know why I said no that many times? You know, nobody today is accusing me of being a bad dad and a dad who just wants to keep my children down and wants them to have no fun and not be happy and be miserable. no. I said no 20 or 30 times and Jace responded to those no's because in certain situations, if I hadn't said no, he put himself at risk of falling, maybe dying, getting swept away in the water like some have, or falling off a tall rock that he doesn't need to be on, severely injuring himself. You see, in my mind yesterday, I said no a lot, but not once did I ever say no because I want Jace to be miserable. I said no dozens of times because I want him to stay alive. I want him to stay alive because I love him. And I love him and I want to be with him. I want to spend time with him. I want to have a long-term life relationship with my son. That's how much I love him. So for me to say no to a rock, that's an easy choice. For me to say no when he's too close to the river's edge, easy choice. It's not about the no, it's about the yes. I love him and I want to spend my life with him. Amen. And we need to s- switch our thinking when it comes to our God. Because we sometimes feel like if I'm a disciple, it's all no. No, don't do this. No, don't do that. Don't love the world. Don't, don't, don't hang out with the wrong people. Don't do these certain things. Don't go these certain places. And we get all upset. We get all offended that God is such a no God. But I want you to realize in the end, verse 17 is what it's all about. It's all about it. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God, he abideth forever. See, God says no because there's a greater yes out there. And the greater yes is that we can spend eternity with God. We can have a walk with God. We can have fellowship with God. We won't destroy ourselves with the lust and pride of this earth. And we can walk with God. Child of God, member of the family this morning, is your life being lived to love the world because you can't love the Father if your heart is bound to the world? Some of you potentially in here, room this size, group this size, are doing things that, the, that would be indicative of the world's love. 
And it's time to step back from that and realize God doesn't say don't get involved in drugs and alcohol because it's, you know, he just wants to make your life miserable. No, if you go to the end of the people that are involved in drugs and alcohol and see where that takes them, it's destruction. So when God says no to something like that, it's not because he's being mean, he's because he wants you to live a good life. You say no so you can have a better yes. Sin, according to these verses, passes away. It's fleeting, so you can focus your life on the fun of sin. But when it ends, you'll have nothing to show. Christian, are you struggling with all the no's? I mean, it can be difficult to feel like all the no's are worth it, but no to sleep in the morning is worth it if it means you can say yes to waking up and spending time with the Lord. See, it's not just all big no's, it's little no's. It's saying no to your body when you're too tired to wake up, but you know I must walk with the Lord, I must have fellowship, so I'm going to say no to myself this morning because the yes is worth it. Saying no to your, uh, to your desire for spending time, dads, when you come home and sit in front of the TV at night, when you want to come home and say, this is what I want to do, I want to turn it off, I just want to sit, and, and yet you've got children that are a greater Yes. There are times where you have to say no to what you want because there's a greater yes waiting. Saying no to the fear um, of, of walking up to somebody and telling them about Jesus Christ, that's a small no compared to the greater yes that someone could come to the saving knowledge of Christ because of it. Saying no to being selfish so you can say yes to coming and serving God here in your local church. It may seem like it's not worth it, but in the end you'll find that when we give ourselves to the Lord's work, He blesses us. There's a greater yes. We just have to be willing to be disciples and say no to ourselves because that's the disciple life. Young people, we use, lose a lot of young people at your age because they think, know this, know that. Don't go here, don't go there, don't do this, I can't watch this. Ladies, I can't wear this. Guys, I can't go there or hang out with these friends. It's always a no, it's always a no. Don't watch, don't listen. Don't do this. No, 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 no. We know many of us are going to camp this week and you're going to hear a lot of no's. And you're going to hear a lot of don'ts. You're going to hear a lot of stops. And you're going to hear a lot of go to sleeps. You're going to hear a lot of love, not the world's. And you can either respond, young person, with a mindset that says, all I hear is rules, all I hear is no, or you can stop focusing on the no and look at the yes, which is a meaningful walk with God. The ones making and enforcing rules in your life, teenagers, like your parents and your pastor and your youth workers and other adults that love you, they're not out to make your life miserable. They're looking at you like you're out walking on the rocks at Falls Park. And because you're young, you don't really know. You haven't lived long enough to know the dangers that lurk over the edge of that cliff. You haven't lived long enough to see what happens when somebody gets swept away in the water, which anybody with any life experience has watched young people do time and time again. So when you're out climbing on the rocks and the people that love you in your life, like your parents and your pastor and your youth workers are saying, no, 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 no. It's not because they want you to be miserable. It's because they want you to live. They want you to have a life that matters. They want you to live a life that's worthwhile and meaningful and fulfilling. And you have something to learn. If you're resistant to all the no's, you're not seeing things clearly. There's a greater yes. 
It's a life lived for God. And in order to enjoy that yes that comes from a walk with God, you just sometimes have to accept the no's. You don't have, get to have it both ways. You can't say, well, I really like the lust and pride and still enjoy God. You have to say no before you get to the yes. So it applies definitely to the child of God today, but it also applies to those who may not be a child of God. See, sin leads to death and destruction. We already saw it in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, it led them to death. Not right away, but spiritual death. And, and that destruction has altered the course of humanity. Well, somebody in here, I know in a group this size, you're bound by sin, and your sin has you headed for destruction. And it's time, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you were to die today and you would say, I don't know that I would spend eternity in heaven, it's time for you to say yes to God. And if that means that you say no to the way that you've been going and no to the things that you've been trusting in and and no to that lifestyle, hey, it's worth it because living with God for eternity is the greatest yes you'll ever have. Christ died for your sins on the cross. He died to separate you from the, the punishment of the consequences of sin. He took it upon himself. You don't have to face spiritual death. You don't have to be separated from God forever in a place called hell. If you simply acknowledge the end of the path of sin and trust in Christ's payment, you can say yes to God today. You simply have to say no to your own way. And I know there's got to be somebody in a room this size that today is the day where it's time to say no to all the other things that you've been trying and say yes to Jesus Christ. There's a greater yes. Your relationship with God is bigger than saying no to some small sins. It's true for the unsaved. It's true for the Christians who love the world. It's true for that child of God this morning who has a tough time saying no to the world. The greater yes is worth it, friends. A life of self-denial opens doors with God that you would never have otherwise. No to your life means yes to life with God. I hope that today you'll see the greater yes and you'll submit to it this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.